The sermon text this morning is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Perhaps you learned when you were in school or sometime after about the continental divide. You know, there's a continental divide, kind of this this joining of mountains. It's a ridge of mountains that go from North, North America all the way down to South America. It's really interesting because on this continental divide, it really kind of creates the basins and handles all the water of this country. So technically, if a, if a drop of rain falls on the east side of the continental divide, let's say it goes through, it does go through Loveland, Colorado. If it drops on the east side, it'll work its way ultimately to the Atlantic Ocean. If it drops to the west side, it'll work its way ultimately to the Pacific Ocean. There's it, a clear divide. There's not two ways. If it falls on the on the east side, that's where it goes. And if it falls on the west side, that is where it goes. And uh, th- there's, no, there's no joining up. There's no crossing over. There's no mixing. It's just one or the other. Well, in our letter that was just written, the part of Galatians in chapter 3, uh, Paul's really dealing with a theological divide about this division um, that, that will lead to life or death, that will lead to blessing or judgment. This theological divide isn't between the church and the unchurch. It's not between the believer and the unbeliever. The theological divide he's talking about is within the church. He's speaking to church people. And he's saying, listen, there's some of you that look to Christ by faith alone to be made right with God and to enter into the covenant community. And there's others of you who look to Christ by faith But with your faith, you add things such as, you know, doing religious duties or going to church. And you see these things uh, that may be godly in their nature, but that you see them as adding to the work of Christ. And what Paul's doing is he's he's like a skillful attorney here. He's going to bring up all these Old Testament saints, and they're all going to testify to us and say this, that if you that if you add to what Christ has done, then you will stand under a curse of God himself. But if you rest in this work of Christ done for us, by grace alone, then you will receive blessings. It's really just saying there's two roads. There's there's a road that we can rely on what we've done, adding to what Jesus has done, or we can rely on Christ alone. It's a very simple sermon, two little points. So look with me just at the road of works. This leads to condemnation. And be aware that the language is harsh because the stakes are high. Look with me at verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. It's interesting. Words are important. You know, We want to be selective. Notice how he begins this. He says, For. 
Oh, when you see a four, you always want to look at what's before it. And he had just told us last time we were in Galatians uh, that Abraham was declared right. He was accepted by God Almighty because he had faith in the promises of God. God promised him that he would save him, that he would be a blessing. God pro- And he believed it. Now remember, Mo- the Abraham was not Jewish. He didn't have a law. He didn't follow dietary restrictions. He didn't keep the Sabbath. And Paul's saying, look at Abraham. Abraham believed by faith. He believed in the promises of God, and God accepted him. God took him in as a son. Now Paul's saying, in contrast to Abraham, you are relying on works of the law. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. What's it mean to rely on works of the law? Well, it means that we're putting our faith, we're putting our trust, not just in Christ, but in the things that we've done for Christ. Relying on the works of the law is like, is like looking at all the things that I do that are spiritually strong, and I see them as adding virtue to my position before God. Like I'm kind of climbing up this righteousness ladder. And if I do more, if I give more, if I attend more, then I'll just go up the ladder and God will find me more valuable. Now, I know that's intuitive. It feels good. It's the way we think. We think if we do more for God, then he'll love me more. And, and that's just intuitive to us. But, but Paul's saying otherwise here. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law, you're under a curse. You're under a curse, man. It seems so harsh. It's like the language of a witch or it's like some magical spell he's giving. But, but you've heard the word curse before. I mean, curse is in the first early chapters of Genesis, right? That the man and the woman, they transgressed against God, and he brought a judgment to them. And then you see in Deuteronomy, in chapter 27, where Moses is about to bring the people into the land, the new land, the promised land. It's an incredible scene. There's 12 tribes of Israel. They've been traveling through the wilderness, and they're about to enter the land. And he sends six of the tribes on Mount Gerizim, and then on a corresponding hill, he sends another six to Mount Ebal. And they shout back and forth, blessings and curses. This is what will happen to us if we don't obey the word of God. And that's what he's quoting here from, from Deuteronomy. If you will not, now he's, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And then at the end of the section, if you go back and read Deuteronomy 26, 27, and 28, he says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you, then all these curses shall come upon you. In other words, what he's saying is, if you don't live by the law of God, you stand under the curse of God for your disobedience. It doesn't matter how hard you're trying. You may be making progress, but if you don't keep all of them, you stand under the curse. This is what Paul's saying. Is if, you wanna, if you want to approach God, if you want to rely on what you're doing to approach God, it, it's, it's not going to go well. He says, don't rely on the works that you've done. Don't trust in the works that you've done. He gives us two reasons in the text. Look in verse 11, because the first reason he gives is no one's justified, no one is made acceptable, no one is made right by these works of the law. Look in 11, he says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So he's saying here it's evident, it should be clear to us that you cannot approach God. It's clear to us because we just read about Abraham. 
And Abraham was accepted by God before the law. And so why are you trying to approach God by the law? And he quotes Habakkuk chapter 2. He says the just shall live by faith. If you want to approach God, which I, I encourage you to do, we approach God by faith, trusting in his mercy, not coming along with our wagon of good deeds done. That's what Paul's saying. But notice what he says immediately following, right in, right in verse 12. He says, the law is not of faith. Now, this is confusing. The law is not of faith. I, I think what Paul's doing is he's showing us that there's a contrast between the way the law of Moses worked and the way the promises of God work. I mean, think about it for a minute. When the law of Moses came through Moses, it did not annul the promises of God that he gave to Abraham. It's, it's different. The law of God was given to us not to save us, not to give us another way of approaching God. The law of God that we can't keep was given to us to show us that we are unable to appeal to God based on our own merits. It exposes our sin. It's, it's like I said a few weeks ago, it's, it's a speed limit sign. It doesn't make you drive slower. It just tells you when you're breaking the law. That's what the law does. It reminds us when we're transgressing God. But nobody's saved by the law. Think about the law. The law is based on merit. The gospel is based on grace. The law is based on doing, and, and, and the gospel is based on believing. They're different. You don't mix. You don't put new wines in old wineskins. They're mutually exclusive. This is why Paul said in chapter 2, earlier in Galatians, he said, if righteousness, if you can be made acceptable to God by law, then Christ died for nothing. They don't mix well. It's one or the other is what he's saying here. You know, when uh, back in 2006, Carol and I had been sharing with my father for I don't know how many years, probably close to 20 years about the gospel and about the faith. Uh, Dad, in his mind, he believed uh, that you, Jesus has come and he's died for sins. And, and you've got to believe in that. And, and you have to practice, you have to act, you have to walk with acts of piety. And if you don't, then this gospel is, is not sufficient. It, it was belief and, and the things that you had to do with it. And that if you brought both to the table, that you would be acceptable to God. And so we'd share with him over the years, some of the conversations were spicier than others, but, but I remember the night on, it was 2006, I believe, four years before he died, we're sitting at the table having another discussion, trying to explain how, you know, the, the more you rely on your works, the less you're concerned about his work. And in like a moment of clarity, he said, I get it. I get it. This salvation is by grace alone it's not by grace plus what i do with my life it, it was a it was a clarifying moment for him and a time of rejoicing for us that's what paul's saying it's not a both and you're either going to rely on the works of the law or you're going to rely on christ alone it's one or the other but he gives us another reasons why you don't want to rely on the works of the law and he says you can't keep them i mean look with me back at 12, he says, the one who does them shall live by them. So if you want to do them, if you want to approach God by the things that you're doing, you better do all of them. And not most of them, not 99% of them. You got to do all of them. And who has really done that? 
I mean, when you think a simple command, right? It's a big command, but it's fairly simple to understand. Love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Have you done that? With all of your mind and all of your heart and all of your strength, every day, continually, consistently, have you loved him that way? Have you loved your neighbor as yourself? You may say, well, I, I haven't, you know, I'm pretty good. I mean, I haven't murdered anybody. Have you been angry at him? Well, I haven't committed adultery. Have you lusted after anyone? I've never stolen a thing. Well, have you coveted anything? In attitude or action, have you abided by the law? I mean, James chapter 2 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Of all of it. Paul's saying, don't rely on the works of the law because you can't keep them. Uh, it, it just leads you to a road of judgment with God. Uh, Carol and I back in, I don't know when it was, 10, 12 years ago, we had a friend over for dinner. and We were sharing the gospel with him and just speaking to it. And he was convinced that God will accept you if you try hard enough. If you just try hard enough, he will accept you. So I looked at him. I said, uh, have you tried hard enough? I mean, have you, really, have you really tried with everything you have? And, and for him, and this is the Spirit of God, this isn't the question, in a moment of real honesty, he just says, no, I haven't. Of course you haven't. None of us have. I mean, all of us in this room have failed to keep the entirety of the law. And Paul's saying, yet, yet why do we keep leaning on it? Why do we keep trusting in it? He's saying, don't rely on works of the law. Now, what, now hear me clearly. I'm not saying that the Christian isn't to walk in the fruit of the Spirit by the power of the Spirit. And we'll get to that in the end. But, but it's amazing how quickly we can become trusting in the things that we've done. This idea of Paul saying don't rely on the works of the law, it's just legalism. That's a fancy word for it. Uh, legalism is where we begin to put more and more confidence in what we've done for God than what God has done for us. It's never exclusive. It's a both and. But we begin to shift our confidence to what we have done for God rather than what he has done for us. It may be in your morality. It may be in your politics. It may be in the good things that you've done. It may be in the ministries. But there's this growing trust and confidence. What do you find confidence in? If you were to stand before God in the next hour, you had one hour to prepare, what would be the basis of your confidence that he would find you acceptable, that he would say, come, well done? What would it rest on? Would it be your morality? Would it be your religiosity? Would it be that you haven't done these major sins, whatever they may be in your mind? What would your confidence be in? You know, Paul speaks about this. The Apostle Paul was one who had great confidence in his flesh at one point. You can read about it in Philippians chapter 3. He speaks about where his confidence is. Let me read to you his testimony. He said, if anyone thinks he should have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness, under the law, I was blameless. So Paul's just kind of pulling out the, the Boy Scout medals here and saying, look at all that I've done. Look at all that I've done for God. If somebody should have confidence in the guy with most medals, he had them. But notice what he says in the very next verse. He says, but whatever gain I had, 
I counted it all loss. Or he goes on later, I counted it garbage for the sake of Christ. Because they don't go together. It's either confidence in the flesh or confidence in Christ. So this is what we're talking about, relying on your works, trusting it, you know, just taking confidence or, or kind of feeling like you're climbing up the rungs of this righteousness ladder. Paul's saying, It'll lead, you'll be under a curse. Think about it for a minute. You know, legalism or relying on works of the law, it really splits the church in half. It, it puts schisms through the church. You know, the, the context Paul is fighting here is these Jewish teachers were from Jerusalem. They come to these churches in Galatia, and they're saying, listen, we're glad that you believe in Jesus as Messiah. That's super. We also need you have, have to be circumcised, and you have to eat this way, and you have to observe the Sabbath. Or you can't really be with us. There's then two tables, right? There's the table of the Gentile Christians, but, but the rest of us, the real Christians, by the way, are kind of doing this law as well as faith. And so it was split in the church. Now, we don't quibble over circumcision and Sabbath-keeping in our culture in our day, but we have other dividing markers that we've been talking about. You, know, you may separate from people that are different from you politically. You may separate from people that are different from you racially. You may separate from people that are different from you in terms of understanding the, the Holy Spirit and the way the Spirit works in life or other nuances of your theology. It, it separates the church, and it divides the one table that unites us. But not just that. Relying on works is not good for your soul. I mean, particularly if you're prone to guilt. I, I, I mean, who keeps the law? And then you start going over, have I done enough? And have I lived up to God's standards? And have I lived up to my own standards? And, and what's going to happen to me? And, and this guilt and condemnation crushes the joy. So it's not good for your soul. It's also not good for your soul if you're a rule keeper, because if you are a rule keeper and you begin measuring yourself on how you're keeping your own rules, it can lead to self-inflation. I had a conversation with a guy once asking about his life. He said, I have no regrets. I said, no regrets? He says, I have no regrets at all. And I thought, boy, you're going to have regrets. It's, you're going to have them. It's, it's bad for the soul. It's bad for the soul when you rely on your works. Uh, but, but here's what it does that breaks my heart. It really distorts the grace of God. When you rely on your works, it, it, it twists God's grace in the gospel. Well, what do I mean by this? When you live a life and you're looking at all the things you've done for God and, and look at how you've changed and look at all the things that you've done for God, you begin to hold God. He's almost indebted to you. Look what I've done for you. You should be doing these things for me. You, you hear it. When a longtime Christian, all of a sudden they get cancer, and they say something along the lines of, I can't believe God did that to me. All that I've done for him, I've gone to church, I've given money, and now look what he's done to me. And, and, and it, it becomes a transactional faith. You see the same thing in Matthew 25. There's a parable in Matthew 25. There's a landowner, and he hires men, and presumably in this day women, to go work in the field. And so he hires them at 9 and 12 and 3 and 6, and he sends them all out. And he says, I'll pay you a denarius. I'll pay you one day's wages. And so he, he sends them out, goes out. But at 9, he sends them. At 12, he gets more, sends them. At, at 3, he sends more. And at 6, he sends more. At the end of the day, he pays them all the same wage. And then the people at 9 and 12 that have been working all day, they say, hold the phone. They're getting the same that we're getting. You know, well, that's not fair at all. 
the parable is showing us we don't understand the generosity of God. We don't understand the grace of God. We think it's built upon what we've done. At the end of the day, when you rely on works of the law, it leaves you under a curse. Why? Here's the, here's the danger of this disease. Being self-righteous looks good, and it feels good. And so you don't see it as the disease that it is. Uh, let me draw a comparison. An author compared self-righteousness and legalism to alcoholism. Here's what he said. Legalism is far more dangerous disease than alcoholism because it doesn't look like one. Alcoholism makes men fail. Legalism helps them succeed. Alcoholism makes men depend on the bottle. Legalism makes them self-sufficient. Alcoholism destroys moral resolve. Legalism gives it strength. Alcoholics don't feel welcome in church. Legalists love to hear the morality extolled in church. There's a danger here of self-righteousness, of trusting in our works. Jesus himself said in Matthew 21, he says, Truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes are going into the kingdom before you. Jesus told this parable to the Pharisees. And can you imagine the religious leaders of the day? He says to them, tax collectors and prostitutes are getting in before you, are getting in before you. This, I think, prompted C.S. Lewis to write, Prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. Do you see what he's warning us here? To the religious, Paul is saying, don't rely on your works to put you in good stead before God and include it in the community of faith. Don't do it. So, so maybe right now you feel like you're getting pinned against the wall. You, you, you feel a, a degree of self-righteousness and you have fallen. What do you do? Well, you know, what do we always do when we're convicted? What, what, what should the Christian always do when they're convicted? They repent. They repent. This is the gift of God, that we can come to God and say, God, forgive me. But I want to warn you, to repent of self-righteousness is very hard. It's hard to let go of what has been your pet. It's hard to let go of what you've trusted in. It's hard to let go of what has given you an identity. It's very hard to do. But you need to repent of it. Otherwise, he says, they're under a curse. Uh, let me give you one more parable. It isn't a parable, excuse me, a story of Jesus in Luke 7. So Jesus goes into the home of Simon. He's a Pharisee. Simon has invited him to dinner. And so he's going there and he's eating with Simon. Simon the Pharisee is thinking and asking Jesus, getting to know him, but clearly he's questioning who this Jesus is, this prophet, this preacher. Well, while they're having dinner, a prostitute presumably comes up and begins to weep on Jesus' feet. So getting his feet wet with her tears. And then she begins drying his feet with her hair. Now, Simon begins thinking, what kind of guy is this? What kind of religious? She's a prostitute, for goodness sake. And she is fawning all over his feet, and he's doing nothing. He's not rebuking her. He's doing nothing to her. So that's the scene. So then Jesus turns to her and says, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Well, it has to be her faith, right? Because she doesn't have any works. It's her faith. As soon as he says that, he turns to Simon. And he says, you didn't even give me water for my feet. You didn't even give me oil for my head. You think you're keeping the law. You haven't even met the basic responsibilities of hospitality to me. And you're relying on your work? 
She's saved without a work because she believes in this Messiah. He's trying to earn his way, and he doesn't get the same encouraging word. We want to repent of our self-righteousness. We don't want to rely on our works. So then you say, well, what are we going to rely on? What are we going to look at? Well, the other side of the divide, this theological divide, you rely on Jesus Christ alone. Look at what he says in verse 13. Look, he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. In other words, here, Christ has come and redeemed us from the curse of the law. We all bear the curse of the law. No one in this room, and even if you think you've kept the law, I'll, I can ask your spouse or your child or your parent. We will, we will convince you. Everybody bears the curse of the law. No one in this room, without making an alteration, will get away from a curse other than Christ bears the curse. He redeems us from the curse. To redeem is to buy back. It means to, to kind of get someone's freedom. So it's used in the marketplace in the context of slavery. It's used in the time of warfare in terms of bringing back prisoners of war. And you would pay a price. You would buy their freedom for them. The presumption is they can't get their own freedom. They can never do it. Someone has to do it for them. And, and so here it says Jesus has redeemed us from the curse. Jesus has bought us back. Only in Christ do we have acquittal from the law. Only in Christ do we have freedom from the verdict of guilty against the creator of the universe. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. But notice how he did it. Notice the price he paid. He did it by becoming a curse for us. Jesus himself took upon himself the judgment of our sin. So our sins were placed upon him, and the curse, or the judgment, fell upon him. So he, though sinless, was treated like a criminal. He bore the crimes that we committed. He bore the liability of our wickedness. And he did it by hanging on a tree. That's what Paul says. He goes back to Deuteronomy 21. He says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So if you were in the Old Testament, you were under the law of Moses, and you committed a crime that was punishable by death, then the law of Moses stipulated that you're stoned. You're stoned. And after you die, you, you're, you're hung on a stake or on a, on a tree. And the reason they did that was because it showed to the community he is paying for his crime. He's... Meeting, God is meeting out the justice. He's bearing the curse. He is forsaken by God because he has sinned against God. So it was for all to see. And what Paul's doing is says, that's why Christ is on the tree. That's why the cross, the cross is to remind us, it was a public declaration that him hanging on a tree means he is bearing our curse of the law. It makes sense of those last words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God is holding him responsible for our sins. But notice what it says. <clears throat> it says, by becoming a curse for us. Can you say that? I mean, many people will say he's born the sins of the world. But can you say he bore my curse? He bore my sins. He bore my punishment. He bore my guilt. That's what it means to be accepted by God. 
that by faith we believe he died for my sins, all of them, the ones prior, the ones following. He bore the curse of God. He bore the punishment for me. Not kind of in a general way for the world. No, he did it for me. I needed him to do it for me. If he doesn't do it for me, I will bear the curse of the law myself. Is that what you believe? Because to believe in that brings about the gift of redemption, which you see in 14. Look in 14, he says, so that in Christ, those in Christ by faith, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. What's he saying here? He's simply saying this, that Jesus Christ, the, the sheer immeasurable mercy of God would bring forth a son who would bear our curse so that all the blessings of Abraham, you'll find them in Genesis 12 and 22, the blessings of Abraham would be ours. These, these blessings, what are these blessings he's given to us? It's a general promise, right? But he's made specific in what follows. That we're given the Spirit of God. So God is giving to us his Holy Spirit through faith. Now, what does that mean? When God gives his very own Spirit to a human soul who's come in faith, they're now made a son or a daughter of God. Forgiven justified, reconciled, accepted, loved. We see this played out in chapter 4. We'll get to this in a few weeks. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, because we're under the curse of the law, to redeem, that's what I just said, to redeem those who were under the law, under its curse, so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters, and because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. There's that sense of we're now children of God. God never not loving us. Any parent here knows your son, your daughter may go astray, but they don't stop being a son or daughter. You have a deep love for them, even if they go awry. You love. This is, this is incredible that Christ bearing the curse for us by becoming a curse that through faith in his work, in his work alone, is what brings the Spirit of God to us. That's what brings the Spirit of God to us. Now, remember the context. Paul's dealing with these false teachers, these teachers from Jerusalem saying, listen, if you really want to be children of God, you need to believe in the Messiah and you need to do these things. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. No, it's in Christ alone. So, so when you see this passage, these two roads, this theological divide, if you will, believe with me in Christ. Believe that he alone saves. It's not him and what you might eventually become with all your potential. It's him alone that saves. And no longer look at your own righteousness or the things that you've done. And if you do look at him, thank him for the grace that you were able to accomplish something. But, but don't look on them with any confidence or any rest or any reliance. Look to Christ alone. And, and, then, and then secondly, re, rejoice with me that we're sons and daughters, that, that, we're, that through faith, if you have believed that Christ has become a curse for you, for you, and you trust in that completely, then rejoice with me that we're children of God. And notice that the promise is fulfilled. You know, Paul said when he became a curse for us, 
the blessings would go to Abraham, and they'd go to the Gentiles. That's what we are. So here we are proclaiming the glory of this message as Gentiles, and we're fulfilling the very scripture that we're reading about. We're proof pudding for the thing that did happen by us right now, rejoicing over the Spirit given to us by Christ alone. And then live for Christ. You know, when I say that you're resting in Christ alone, I'm not saying we're anarchists. You know, hey, forget the law, do whatever you want. That's not what I'm speaking about at all. You know, I always know what people love by what they pursue. You can always, they can tell you what they believe. You can see what they believe. You can see what they love by what they pursue. And so the call here, you know, we already learned in chapter 220 that he says, while in the flesh we live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Live for Christ. This is what it means. You know, there's a great little passage in Corinthians where it says, for the love of Christ controls us, that we no longer live for ourselves, but we live for him who died for us and was raised. That's how we know, does the Spirit of God dwell within you? You live for him, you love him, you pursue him. And then last, I think we have to share this message. This is a message to the nations. This isn't a message to the Jewish church, or the Jewish people, or it's not a message to some ethnic group. This is a message that by faith, it's not by ethnicity, it's not by works, it's by faith. We are the ones now who have been touched by the Spirit of God. We are the ones who now express this to others. So you have here this theological divide. We can rely on works, but it leads to a curse. Or we rely on Christ, and it leads to the blessings of God, which are going to come to us through the Spirit. And that's really what the rest of the book is going to speak to us about. How do the blessings of the Spirit come to us? So for those of you, if you're here and you really have been uncertain about your faith or where you stand, speak to an elder or speak to a member of this church or come forward. Don't, don't wait. Don't think, I'll just get to it later. But for those of you who are resting in him, fully rejoice with me. For those of you who have been convicted by, maybe I have relied on all the things that I've done, then repent. It's a gift of God for us to return to him. Let's take a moment now and ask God for greater clarity and wisdom and maybe even a heart movement, and then I'll pray for us in just a moment.